Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. How are you tonight? All right, there's some energy in here. I love it. It's very, very good. I tell you, it's hot out there. It's hot. For the first, I got in the pool with my daughter today, and I realized, oh my gosh, like the water is, even the water is starting to get hot. You know, and that's like when you know you're in the middle of summer when the water in the pool is like, can I get some cooler water in here, you know? So it's crazy. But anyway, I'm so glad you're here. I'm Tim Jacobs, lead pastor here at Compass Church, one of the members of the preaching team. If you're new here, you'll be hearing from different people. I'm the, I'm the one that speaks here the most, but uh, you'll, you'll hear from different voices. They're all... Uh, uh, really amazing men of God who just, who love to um, communicate his word and have a path, and they're, and they're authentic people as well, and so I just, uh, I mean, if you're new, you get a chance to meet me, and then as, as you hang out here more, you'll see other people, and I gotta tell you, you know, um, our, our worship team, and I know I've been saying this a lot, but they just, they're getting better and better every week, and not just them, for, yeah, you can clap for them, I think they're awesome. And not just from the, the, the talent standpoint, but, but just the heart and, and, and what they're, how they're leading us into worship. And, and Gabe said something a long time ago, and I, I'll never forget it. And I've, I've used this in trainings with other pastors and, and that kind of thing with church planting and stuff. How, how his goal is, is so that when you're here worshiping, that you're not thinking about the past you know, all, where you came from or all the struggles that you have going on. You're not thinking about your future, all the things that you have to do, but you're just thinking about the moment. And that's the goal, because in the moment is where God is. In the moment is where you can lay aside all of your troubles and you can be realigned with who you're supposed to have your focus on. And I just sense that they're, they're just, they just have an amazing way of, of doing that. So this is the last installment of the Everyone Has Influence series. And it's the perfect one to end on because it kind of brings everything together. And so the story we're going to look at, I, I've taught it before. And it's funny because I was, ta- I was talking to the staff. I said, you know, I've taught this before. Um, do I really want to do it again? And, and they keep encouraging me because there's so many people here who are new and a lot of these stories you just haven't really heard. And so what I'm hoping, like we talked about Esther last week and we talked about Joseph and then Joseph who's the father of Jesus and we talk about these different characters who really should kind of make up the foundation of so much of, of our our lives spiritually in terms of we don't always get things through just like um, propositional truths. A lot of times we get them through stories. We get truth through stories and especially stories of leadership. So I want to remind you that leadership above all else is influence. And I believe that every single person in here has the ability to become a leader right where you are. Not when you get to another position not when you finally graduate, not when you finally get the promotion, but right where you are, even if you think you don't have a huge level of influence in your life, if you're a mother, if you're a father, if you're an employee, um, if you are a roommate or a spouse, whatever circle you find yourself in or multiple circles you find yourself in, you have the opportunity to lead because leadership is about influence. It's about affecting and changing the way the people around you think and behave. And really there's nothing more important than that. I mean there really isn't anything more important than that. 
And so as we've been developing these ideas, I've been, I've been really passionate because I, I, I want you to, 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 the last thing I want you to do is think this is not for me. This is for you. And maybe you've gone your whole life and you've never thought it li- about it like this. But what we're hoping to do is, you know, as you continue on in this idea, we're going to be starting a new series next week. But remember what our big event is coming up in August, August 10th and 11th for two days, the Global Leadership Summit, right here where there's, we're going to be one of hundreds of host sites around the nation and really around the world. But there's over 100,000 people that will be joining us in various locations all over the world to really have a two-day intensive on your own level of leadership and your ability to be able to grow in that area. And it's, I'm telling you, it's world-class stuff, world-class leaders. And uh, you've heard me talk about it. This is the last weekend to get the, uh, the discount on it. But it's important. Now, if you were here last weekend, then you heard about the story of Esther. We even had props. Remember that? It was fun. They weren't dolls. They were action figures. That's very important distinction. They were action figures. But if you remember, um, we had the story of Esther, and what's going to be crazy today is we we talked about Esther. Today we're going to talk about the story of Nehemiah. But what you have to know is, is that the two are connected in a very interesting way. You may not have realized this, but the story of Esther, remember Esther was, um, was fashionista Barbie. Remember her? She was, that was the character we used for her. And then um, her husband Xer- Xerxes was Star-Lord, and we had him portrayed as that. And then Mordecai was the minion, right? And, and Mordecai was the uncle of Esther. Now, th- if you weren't here last week, then you're like, what is he talking about? So you'll have to watch it online because it was fun. And we even had a gallows and we, hang- we hung the bad guy. It was great. Like literally hung him and swung him and stuff. It was, it was really cool. But anyway, just so a little, just because I'm a nerd, you're going to have to just um, um, entertain me for, uh, let me entertain you for a minute on this, on this little important detail. In fact, so this all happened like in 483 BC. Okay, so remember when Mordecai, um, he uncovered a plot to kill King Xerxes, and because of that, they found out who the bad guys were, and then they disposed of them, and then King Xerxes was able to live on, right? And then the whole thing happened with Esther. Well, what ended up happening is the story continues, because there's really no happily ever afters in real life, right? In the movies, but not in real life. So what happens in real life is their lives continue on, and then about 20 years later, another plot to kill Xerxes emerges. This time, Mordecai doesn't know anything about it, and it's actually successful, and Xerxes is murdered by the captain of his bodyguard, or actually who is, you know, the head of his security. So when that happens now, his son, whose name is Darius, is supposed to take the throne, except his son um, also has a brother whose name is Artaxerxes I, and Artaxerxes wants the throne as well, so he kills his brother Darius, and he becomes the king in 464, I think, BC. So you can see we have some family problems going on, and all of this happens. Esther has since died. I think she died about, um, she may have died about 450 BC, so she lived through some of this. It's kind of a sad thing when you think about it, and when, what happens with the family dynamics. So here's what's happening. So we continue on now. Xerxes is gone, but it's in the same city, the city of Susa, the same, you know, thing, but just kind of a different cast of characters, right? So the, the, the similar city, but now it's another generation of issues of God once again preserving his people people through a leader. And this leader's name happens to be Nehemiah. 
So 38 years later, after the story of Esther, in 445 BC, enters a Jewish guy named Nehemiah. And if you have a Bible, you can turn there, and we can follow along in the story. We'll be kind of skipping around, telling you kind of the first part of the story more than anything else we're going to focus on. Now, we don't have an action figure for Nehemiah this week, because we don't have that many characters in the story. But Nehemiah was called the cupbearer to the king. So he's the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes, who's the guy who murders his brother so he could be the king, right? Everyone follow with me? Hopefully that's clear as mud. So, so, so Nehemiah is called the cupbearer to the king. Now you think, okay, what is that? A cupbearer is a food taster. You think, well, that's kind of a low-level job. No, it's not. In fact, he tastes the food to make sure it's not poison before it gets to the king. Now remember, and, and by the way, this is a very, very, very important job. Because if you think about it, remember we just talked about how the whole kingdom kind of has like trust issues, you know? I mean, their murder brothers getting murdered and there's head of security killing his boss and all this kind of stuff. So if you want to kill somebody, you poison them um, with food, right? That's what you can do. So the bad food will get to Nehemiah before it gets to the king. Now the king has got to trust him like you cannot believe. In fact, cupbearers, their official title, were often um, second in command. Of, of the whole kingdom and, and oftentimes in that time. If you had a kingdom or whatever else, you were very, very high up on the totem pole if you were the cupbearer. So it's kind of a high position and very, very, very trusted because if anyone could off the king, it could be him, right? Because he could switch things kind of like the princess bride. Remember, you know, they switched the, right? But you drink this. Remember that whole thing is all confusing, but it's awesome. It's a great scene. So this is what's happening. Now, unfortunately for Nehemiah, he also happens to be a eunuch. And the reason why is because, he, because of his great stately position, he gets to hang out with the king's harem, which could be upwards of like a thousand of the world's most beautiful women. So even though he's trusted, he still had to go through the process of, in fact, overwhelmingly the evidence suggests that Nehemiah was a eunuch. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, well, basically, guys... He had to say goodbye to his buddies, you know. So I don't know how else to say it, right? So he gets to hang out with the world's most beautiful women, but in the, you know, the old movie, it's like the line from the old movie, as good as it gets, you know, he'd be the luckiest guy in the world if that did it for him. But it doesn't, right, because he's a eunuch. So this is his situation. High up in the palace, Friends with the king, buddies with the king, around a lot of beautiful women, but obviously it's kind of a bummer because he's a eunuch and that's the way that it is. Now everything is going along fine in Nehemiah's life. He has a cush job, life is good, until one day his brother Hanani comes to visit him from an area of Jerusalem. Now Nehemiah is a Jew, they're 900 miles away from Jerusalem. And he comes to tell him the update on how his hometown is going. And this is what he says in chapter 1, verse 3. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So you have Nehemiah's hometown. Jerusalem, the city that he probably didn't grow up in, but where he has attached his past, his present, and his future to. The city that holds promise. It is the place where God is supposed to do all of his business. All of the promises of God, all of the culture, all of his identity is wrapped up in the welfare of this city. 
And he is told that the walls have been destroyed and the gates have been burned with fire. Now you may be thinking, well, what's the big deal? You know, I mean, the wall falls down, you just rebuild the wall. But there's something psychological at that time when you had a city without walls. A city without walls was a city without a culture. It was a city without any pride. It was a city that didn't have a sense of cohesion. If you can imagine, for example, last week, we celebrated the 4th of July, right? Fun times. Did y'all see fireworks? Yeah, we saw fireworks. Some of you probably lit them off. Hopefully you still all have all of your digits, right? From last week, you didn't blow any fingers off or anything else. But 4th of July is an amazing thing, and we love it. You know, everyone's posting stuff online, and you're wearing your American flag shirts, and you're putting your American flag out, and, and you know, the, the really intense people will maybe even bust out the Declaration of Independence, and they'll read that, or they'll post that online. They'll say, remember, you know, and all this stuff. And so there is a great sense in that holiday of civic pride and identity, and it makes you feel like you're a part of something when we do that. Imagine, however, if July 4th last week came and went and nobody did anything. Everybody just woke up. No one talked about it. They knew that at one time we did, but nobody does that anymore because right now everyone's afraid. They're afraid of intruders. They're afraid of, uh, afraid of conquerors, and they're ashamed. They're ashamed that they don't do that anymore, and so they don't speak of it, and they, all their lives are in the rearview mirror. And all their lives are like, we once were this. We once did this. And for Israel, it even goes a step further because this was not only their nation, it was also their religion. And so worship had stopped. So not, imagine not only, uh, a, a, we, if we lived in a nation where they weren't flying flags, you weren't celebrating holidays, but, there, but nobody was really going to, there was no sense of any kind of worship going on of anything. There was just kind of a sense of morose. There was fear. There was dejection and there was shame. And they, because a city without walls was always open to attack and it was an embarrassment. It was a humiliation. It was something that attacked the very soul of the people, both collectively and as individuals. And so Nehemiah hears this and it says this in verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And all of a sudden, his whole life changes. Here he is in in the palace of the most powerful king of the most powerful kingdom in all of the world, the Persian Empire. If you know anything about history, the Persian Empire was unbelievably rich and, and was, was able to conquer anyone throughout, especially during the period that Nehemiah was alive. He had an incredible position, an incredible safety overall. But his whole life changed at that moment. He wept and he mourned. You see, in life, there are some things that are worth crying over. There are some things that are worth you stopping everything and letting your heart get absolutely wrenched over. There are some things in this, in this world where it's so easy. You never know how easy it is. Like, and, and there's been, I've read people that have commented on this. And this has been like this for years, really with newspapers and then going into the internet. How you can, you can read a story 
of, you know, a massive landslide that kills 300 people in some part of the world, little bodies being crushed. And then right underneath it, you know, your favorite TV show is being canceled. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh man, you know? And it's like, it's, it's so easy to read past the brokenness of the world and just go to the next little thing or some other kind of trivial story, but they're, but they're looped, they're grouped together. So as visually on the page, they're almost like they carry the same importance, you know? And so it's easy for us, I think, because there's so many things out there to just let our hearts get kind of hardened to things. But there are times, and this is one of them, in life where you, you need to let your heart just get broke, just shatter. Otherwise, you, you become too insulated from the world and you become kind of a, a useless person. And here's why. Because when that happens to you, it's something that I would call a burden. When Nehemiah hears the news about his city, his reaction was he developed what you would call a burden. Now a burden, as I would define it, is something that is a deep conviction that comes as a result of being emotionally destroyed by something that should not be. It, it is a deep conviction in your heart that you don't, you can't just gin it up. It, it has to arrive on you. You, you have to kind of let it hit you like a wave, you know? And it hits you, and, and it, it results in your emotions just being destroyed when you see something that you know should not be. Or another way to put it would be when you see the vast difference between what is and what should be. And when that hits you, you change. When that hits you, you are no longer the same. All of the priorities are up in the air. Was there ever a time in your life where you saw some type of moral evil and it just wrecked you? Has there ever been a time in your life where you saw something and you said, that's just not right. And, you, and it, it, it grabbed a hold of you and it wouldn't let go. That's a burden. That's a burden. And they're not bad. In fact, the burden is the beginning, so many times, the beginning of leadership. It's the beginning of change. It's the beginning of action. But it starts with a burden. I was watching a video of one of our missionaries. I shared it earlier today. I watched it a couple days ago. A friend of mine, we partner with their organization. It's called Indigenous Ministries International. My friend John Cook, he's a wild man. He posts this little selfie video he, he's taken of himself in northern Iraq. He's working with Yazidi women and men, but in this case there were these Yazidi women in particular he had been talking to, who, had, who have been 
their lives have been just crushed by ISIS. And so he's in ISIS territory. The guy, he, like I say, he's, he's a wild man. And he's up there. He's like a few, he's several miles north of Mosul. And the, the ISIS people have since moved on. But he was talking to these Yazidi women. And, he, so, and, and, and you see John, and John has got a, he's, he's, he's can take care of himself, you know. He's been around the block. And he's got a solid constitution, you know. But I could tell in the video that he was broken. And I, and I knew he probably said, I have to, I just have to do this. And he gets on the camera and he says, I was just talking with these Yazidi women. And uh, one of them said that under ISIS, she had been raped over 50 times. He said, the other woman, he said, I can't, I can't even imagine how a human being could do the things that this woman said were done to her. I can't, I can't imagine it. And, and his voice is kind of, and his face is, you know, I, and I could tell. And he said, we're here because we're trying to share the love of Jesus, the hope of Jesus with these women. And when I saw him, I knew I was looking at a man who had a burden that he had let himself get emotionally destroyed by what was true around him and what should not be. Now I understand that there are so many things in the world that we cannot emotionally invest ourselves in. I, I've gone down that road myself, and, but I've found in my own life, you know what I've done at times? I've become calloused to things. And I've gone, well, pff, I, you know, I can't, I can't do that. No, but I can, I can do something, you know? I think one of the things that, that the church in general, and I've talked to other leaders about this, and, and we have to deal with this here. One of the things that the church has not really done a very good job with is the refugee crisis. And the problem is, is because it's become political. And so, you know, um, regardless of your politics, if we take politics out of the equation and we realize that we have Christians, listen to this, folks, Christians whose walls have been broken down and whose gates have been burned with fire, who lived lives very similar to us with cars and houses and kids that went to school and had backpacks and textbooks and played with little action figures like I brought last week and were on the internet and had phones, lived lives very much like us, just in a different time zone under a different flag, who were forced to leave their country and leave their homes. And now their homes have been leveled and they cannot go back, but nobody will take them so they have nowhere to go. So what would you do if all of a sudden, all of us were told we had to get up and walk towards California? And then when we got to Blythe, the people in California at the little, you know, agricultural uh, guard shack that they have there said, you can't come in here. Go, stop. 
And that's what the situation with Jordan, there's a refugee camp that I've, they've told me about this. The guy, the president of World Vision, I heard him talk about this several months ago. There's a big giant barbed wire fence several miles around with thousands upon thousands of people in it who are living in the dirt. When was the last time you heard anything about that? When was the last time the news covered it? All they cover is the, is the hot button stuff, like the, the politically charged kind of stuff. I'm talking about Christians, people that share our faith, that believe in the same Jesus, who are living in the dirt, whose homes are gone, and they're not, they, they don't, they want to, if you ask them, they want to go back. So I've asked, um, uh, we have a, a global outreach team here that, that vets the people that we, that we uh, uh, partner with. And I've asked them to look into several different ways that we as a church can start, albeit a little bit late in the game, but that we can start doing something to help these people right where they are. Because their walls are broken down and their gates are burned with fire. And most of us just kind of go, well, it sucks to be them. I mean, I don't know. But that's not what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah did this and he allowed himself, he, he allowed himself to weep and to mourn. And then what he did was, was is fascinating. He fasted and he prayed. You see, when you get a burden, not only does it, do you allow it to just kind of come into your soul and change you, right? It has to change you fundamentally. And it doesn't happen every week. These are monumental things that happen throughout the course of your life. They can be time-bound, like it was in Nehemiah where there was a starting time, and right or there can be something that continues on for a long time, but it brings your life significance and meaning, and it focuses your attention. And so what he does is, he, um, he fasts and he prays. So that's the second thing. A burden should drive you to prayer because it should be big enough to where you have to get God involved. You know, if, if you get a burden for something that's this minor, that's fine. You know, like I get a burden every day around 1130 that I got to eat, you know. And I go, I, if I don't solve this problem, it's going to be bad for everybody around me because I just, you know, so I can go solve that problem pretty easily. I just go get food. But a burden is something where you have to, like a real one, I mean, you have to say that what, what's in front of me is bigger than what I can accomplish. And it drives you to prayer. It drives you to what Nehemiah did here. Where, and if you look at this, Nehemiah prays and the prayer forces him to contend with reality. There's like a growing up moment that happens. And I love this because wherever he was, all of a sudden it's like he grows up and he sees life for the way that he is. He lets this problem become a lens through which he sees reality now. And so if you look at it, this is what he says. He prays. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. 
Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. And this is what I'm talking about with with seeing clearly. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules you commanded and, and and you commanded your servant Moses. And so what happens is prayer has this amazing effect of clarifying and sharpening and bringing light to issues and there's repentance in his prayer. And repentance, you guys, is a beautiful thing. You know, um, oftentimes repent is used as a word that, you know, is like a negative thing like repent. And it's like, oh, you know, and, and it's like a, something that people think they're going to come to church and the pastor's going to stand up there and yell repent. And it's going to be very um, unfriendly and mean and all this kind of stuff. But repentance is a beautiful thing because all repentance is, is when you go, you know what? Man, I've been, I've been wrong. And, and I'm, I'm finally at a place in my life where I see I've been wrong and I'm not ashamed to admit that now and I, I, I want to be open about it. And I got to fix some stuff. And, and, you, and you, the cool thing about repentance is when you turn, you then, you then can't wait to start going the other direction because you're like, now I see the direction I should go. So I'm going to start going that direction and I'm excited about get, going down that. I'm, I'm no longer hiding. I'm no longer pretending that it's not a problem. And Nehemiah basically is owning this. That's huge. So what is happening? The burden. See, not only is this something that you let emotionally kind of come into your life, it drives you to prayer, and it drives you to own the problem. You own it. I heard this great quote yesterday. I was listening to a podcast, and they were saying that, like, in a competitive situation, you know, like, in a work situation where there are different teams or, you know, in sports or in the military— the one who cares the most is the one who wins. That's really cool. The one who cares the most is the one who wins. And I love that. Because Nehemiah, he becomes like this bull. I mean, he's just like, he's going to go for it. But what, what, what concentrates that? And what fires up like the edges of a river that are being drawn in. When the, when, the, when the river gets narrower, what happens to the water? It starts going faster and the current gets more powerful. <sighs> so when you pray, you start to see possibilities that you never saw before. I'm telling you, when you pray, that, that, that's the kind of stuff that happens. Possibilities open up that you never considered. When, and a beautiful prayer is to say, God, I have no idea how this is going to work, but I need you. And then, this is so cool. So this is what he decides to do. He's going to ask the king if he can travel 900 miles to the city of Jerusalem, to a place where no one knows him. Now, I know I made a joke about the eunuch thing earlier, but here's the thing. You have, you have a guy... Um, because he, he's an outsider. He's a member of the upper class of the Persian Empire. And he's got the audacity. Even though he's a Jew, he's not a member of the priestly class. That's a big deal. He's not a priest. He's a secular guy. He's, a, he's an unschooled guy. He hasn't been formally trained in Judaism. He's not someone you look to for spiritual guidance. And so 
He's, he's got this secularist kind of thing coming from the, he's, and he's a Persian dude. He's going to come into Jerusalem and he's going to have the audacity to try to convince them who've already been there as an outsider, it's time to rebuild the wall. So, I mean, that is, a, that is like, you, you cannot understand how crazy that plan is. That is a very, because first thing you got to do is you got to get past the king. Now, you're the king's royal top food taster. You're his like hedge against life and death. One of his most trusted associates. And you're going to ask him if you can split. It's like the thing we talked about last week, very parallel to Esther. If he goes before the king and the king's not in a good mood, he's done. Or if he if he's thinking, man, he's turning on me. You, you, there's some dynamics going on here. It's a very, very gutsy move. But he prayed. And I love this. So he goes to the king in, ver in chapter two and the king sees Nehemiah and he knows Nehemiah. He's like, hey. He's like, why are you looking so sad? Look at your face. You know, you're so sad. What is wrong with you, right? You don't look like the happy, joyful Nehemiah that I know. What's wrong with you, man? Come on, tell me. And then look at verse two. Then I was very much afraid. I love that verse. I love that verse. Why is he so much afraid? Why is he so much afraid? Because he's about to do something awesome. Okay? And when you're about to do something awesome, it's often very much precursored, that's not a word, by fear. When you are afraid, it's often because you're about to do something really awesome. And he's about to step over the line. In fact, he's gonna do something very significant. The reason that we often get afraid in times like this is because we are about to cross the line of predictability. And we are going to a place where we do not know where it's going to end up. And that is the soil of fear. Listen to this quote from the Lord of the Rings where Sam says this to Frodo. He says, the brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo, adventures as I used to call them. I used to think that they were the things that the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them, because they were exciting and life was a bit dull, a kind of sport as you might say. But that's not the way, it, the way of it with the tales that really mattered or the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have just been landed in them usually. Their paths were laid that way as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back. Only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know, because they had been forgotten. And then what he's trying to say there is, when Nehemiah has this moment, it's not that he went looking for it. It landed on him. And so you can't sit there, and it's a wonderful scene in The Lord of the Rings, where, in the book especially, where Frodo's like, how do we get into this mess? And Sam's like, we, we didn't choose this. this. This is how it ended up. And, and, and it's only going to be a great adventure if we move forward. If we back off now, it's not, a, it's not an adventure anymore. So many times we want to live life as an adventure, but we don't want to pay the price. The reason we're reading about Nehemiah today was that he didn't go out and look for this crisis, but it happened and he found a burden and he devoted himself to prayer and he gave himself to it. The reason we're reading about Nehemiah is because he didn't turn back. He was very much afraid. 
It's at that moment where everything counts. And it's at that moment that we as a church, we like individually and collectively, guys, we need to live there. And I'm always going to push this. I'm always going to push this. Um, because otherwise we get stagnant and stale. As a church, we're always going to have problems, but I'd rather have us have problems that are the result of us trying to push forward than have the problems that come from when you're too afraid to move forward. Are you with me on that? I'd much rather have problems that come from a little bit of chaos that's created when, when we're trying to make things happen and we're living on the edge of our finances, living on the edge of our volunteers, living on the edge of what we, what we can do as, a, as an organization. I'd rather have problems that come from that than the problems that come from we've been doing the same thing like this for the last 15 years and there's the same people sitting over there. We're just all a little bit older and, you know, we're not as good looking anymore and, you know, whatever. And then music's the same. This is the same. We haven't done anything different in years. We haven't taken any risks in years. That's not the will of God. Listen to this guy, Hans Kung. He says, <coughs> excuse me, he says, a church which pitches its tents without constantly looking out for new horizons, which does not continually strike camp, is being untrue to its calling. We must play down our longing for certainty, accept what is risky, live by improvisation and experiment. Man, that's crazy. That's why we have an organizational structure here that doesn't stifle creativity. It doesn't stifle movement. We have an organizational structure here where the leadership that, that, that is in, in, around here is, is always pushing me. Hey, Tim, what are we doing about this? What are we doing about that? We're not a church that goes, you know, uh, this place is just getting a little too out of hand. Um, we don't have that kind of a thing. Or, you know, we're really just going to need to take like another year and a half and just contemplate this. And we don't have that. We have a risk posture. One of the things that we're going to have to deal with is community here. One of the risks that we're going to have to take here. We have connection groups and they've been going fine. They've been going well. But one of the things that we've been sensing as a leadership is that we can do the job of ministry well without really knowing what's going on in people's lives. And that's got to change, guys. If you want to come here and be anonymous for, the, for three, four months, that's, that's cool. I get it. But if you've been here for three years and you're serving on a team and you're invested in this place and you still want to be anonymous, we're going to make life difficult for you. We just are. And you're going to be asked to take risks to be a real human being. Because we were doing well for a while, and, and, and I think, I, I just, we got to fix that. And, and you're going to, you know, we're not going to announce broadcast all that, but you will, you will notice changes over the next few months, next six months especially, in how we, we, work, we work to try to break down anonymity around here. So he was very much afraid. Then verse 3, I said to the king, let the king for, live forever. Why should my face be sad when the city, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king's, and it was really dramatic, right? You know, why should I not be sad? My whole city's burned up. And this king says, all right, what do you want? What do you want? And he tells him. By the way, first he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. 
I love that. Clutch moment. Before he opens his mouth, he prays. Now, don't think he just rushed in. He's been praying for four months. Four months fasting and praying. Doesn't just run out and knee-jerk. Then he makes his plan, goes to the king. Now it's clutch moment. He prays the God of heaven, tells him the whole thing. He says, I want to go. I want to be gone. Here's I'm going to be back, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then he gets really pushy. He starts asking for letters, basically like a passport, so he can get there and get the king's, you know, sign off and all these kinds of things. And he says this in verse 5, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now, if you know the story, we don't have time to get into the whole story. I'm just going to tell I, 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 I want to tell you the whole story and get all the detail, all the other guys. And I just, that would just be too, too shallow. I wanted to get into the deep waters and woods of burden and what it feels like. And I wanted to challenge you because what happens is he does go there. He inspects the whole thing. He rallies the people together. And it's, it's an amazing thing because here's a guy who has a burden, right? And he's so fired up. He's prayed up. He's like passionate about this. And he's like, okay, guys, here's what I think we should do. Look around. This whole place is in shambles. What do you say? We rebuild the wall and we'll no longer have a problem. And he's like waiting. And they're like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And you're going, are you kidding me? You guys have been living like this for how many ever years? And it took this guy to come all the way over to you and in like a couple days just go, hello, let's get some people together and let's do this thing. But what's the point? Sometimes if it doesn't get done, there's no one else that's going to do it except you. And in your circle and with your eyes that you see and the, the things that God has exposed to you in ways that no one else can see around you, if there's something that's wrong and it's not getting fixed, it may be because God's called you to be the person to fix it. And you'd be amazed when you go, hey, I think we should do this. And everyone's like, oh yeah, that's a good point. I never thought of that. What's wrong with you all? Nothing's wrong with them. They were just waiting for you. Someone with a burden. Someone who let themselves get emotionally destroyed. And couldn't live with this current situation anymore. Now, I don't know what that looks like in your life. It could be very, very micro. But don't be afraid of it. If it's just and if it's right, you will be afraid because you're pushing something. You're pushing against resistance. And that brings fear and that causes fear. Don't, don't sweat that part. You will be afraid, but you don't run from the fear. You push through the fear the way Nehemiah did. You pray like crazy, you take a step. And you pray like crazy, and you take a step. And you pray like crazy, and you take a step. Now, let me ask you this, and I'm going to close. Well, let me fill this little last part in. Let me ask you this question. Why do you think this stuff is so important? And why do you think you were built this way? Why do you think you were built with the capacity to see something wrong and get gripped by it and want to do something about it? Because you're made in the image of God. That's why. And God himself created us in his image, created us to love us and looked down on earth and saw what we had become and let himself get emotionally destroyed over it. If you don't believe me, read the Minor Prophets. Read Hosea. Read the Old Testament. 
God, the, the anthro, um, what do they call it, the anthropomorphic or whatever, when he's, you know, you, he's acting like a, like a person, weeping. And so what does he do? He's not willing that any should perish. He's not willing that any should perish. So he sends his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. Because he had a burden. Because he saw your situation and he said, no, no. It's not going to end that way. It's not going to end that way. She's not going to keep dealing with that. He's not going to go out like that. She's not going to go through her whole life thinking that way about herself. No, I'm going to step in. I'm going to forgive sin. I'm going to heal. I'm going to restore. And so when you do these things, you are acting like him. That's crazy. That's crazy. But it's what he wants from us. Would you bow your heads with me? You know, in this, in this moment, um, I don't know what God's telling you. I, I'll, I'll just open up the Bible and start reading it and start trying to do everything we can to, to suck out the truths and lay them out before us. But the one truth that's really important is that from a spiritual sense, your walls are broken down and your gates have burned with, been burned with fire. And without forgiveness, without restoration, without the touch of God in your life, you cannot be fixed. You need a Savior. But fortunately for you, the God in heaven is emotionally moved by your plight. And because of that, sent his son to die on the cross for you. And all he asks is that you would see that and seize upon that and say yes to him. And so if you'd like to say yes to him today, I just write where you are. In your head, just say, God, you see the situation that I am in. And you see my sin. I cannot save myself. I'm saying yes to you. Thank you for having a burden for me. Thank you for not leaving me here to die alone, but for giving me new life. Thank you for cleansing me of my sins and forgiving me. For those of us who have already made that decision at some prior time in our lives, let me ask you what's breaking your heart. Or has your heart become so just closed to the things around you, the people around you. It's just not, it's just not there anymore. It's a beautiful thing when you take up a burden and you pray for something bigger than you can do. So God, we ask us, ask you to use us, ask you to do things beyond what we can do on our own. Would you open our eyes to things that should, that should move us? That should bring up in us a sense that this is not right. And from that, that we might be moved to action, to burden, to bravery. Thank you for that.
Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.